Welcome to Iron Sights. This podcast candidly seeks to create opportunities and deliver impact by sharing the experiences and wisdom of successful entrepreneurs and thought leaders who unapologetically aim to win in health, fitness, business, and life. I'm your host, Scott Howell. Welcome to Old School Meets New School. Tradition meets innovation and imperfection meets excellence. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Iron Size Podcasts. My guest today is my friend Monsal Denton. Monsal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for reminding me of yeah, my some some parts of my past explorations with history and uh iron sights, you know, the part of the gun, especially in world war two was pretty powerful. So it just reminded me of that. Yeah, man. Yeah. I should be the one thanking you for being on today. I'm so, uh, I'm so happy to have you. It's been, you know, I felt like I formed such a connection with you and the, the short time, but intense amount of time that I got to spend with you. I feel so fortunate to have you on today to kind of talk a little bit about you for those that have, that listened to the, to the show, they heard, hopefully at this point, Mike Salemi and I kind of go through a very detailed um, breakdown of what our experience was on, on our sacred hunt with you just a, a couple of months back into down in Texas. And uh, I, th- I think people had a lot of curiosity. I got a lot of questions about some of the other things and, and who's the guy behind it. And so that's what all t- today's all about, man, is to, to dig down and, learn a little bit more about Monsel and kind of talk about uh, you and a little bit of your history and what sacred hunting is and what it means to you. And um, I, I guess just bring a little bit more insight to people who may be curious, but also maybe uh, help them maybe make more of a connection with the things they do on a daily basis as it, with regard to their food and how they're connected to nature. And if there's a guy that can do that, it's you for sure. So thanks again for being on, man. Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit of, uh, you know, I always kind of start these things, a little background, a little bio to kind of catch people up, but um, you're the founder of Sacred Hunting and you've done some things in your life um, in business and and so forth. And this is where you are currently and it it seems to be the perfect fit for you. But I guess if we had to just sort of get an overview of what Sacred Hunting is, to me, it's, you know, what what you're doing is you're, you're hosting these events these hunting retreats specifically for men uh, as of now, maybe, maybe you might be able to serve women later on. I don't know, but uh, helps, helps men sort of get connected with, with where their food comes from and how to source that, where that the source of that food is. And they get to experience both that and nature at the same time. And you're also introducing them to, uh, maybe for the first time or reintroducing them to sort of this rite of passage. Uh, I certainly experienced all of those things, but does that sound like a pretty accurate summary? Yeah, totally. What I, what I say when people ask what I do is I, I focus first on the transformation. So what I facilitate is transformation for men and women. I do have some co-ed experiences, although they're less frequent. And to create that transformation, 
I use the practice of hunting. I use the practice of rites and rituals, indigenous ceremonies and plant medicine. They all, they are all the supporting cast that supports the transformation that, that I want to facilitate for people. And that might be transformation around their relationship to the food they eat as you've suggested, it might be their relationship to nature. It might be their relationship to masculinity, to even death, you know, having, having a, a, a dead animal taking the life of, of something that is so close to us can bring up, you know, death of loved ones or things like that. So it's, it's really about the transformation and, and what one takes away is what is most alive for them at that moment. You know, for me, I was very clear with my intention going into my, my sacred hunting experience with you, but there were things that I gained along the way that I didn't know about yet. Right? And I think, so there was a transformation in the sense that, uh, you know, I wanted to fulfill this rite of passage in my own life that I've been connected to, but hadn't actually experienced yet and come out the other end feeling fulfilled and also uh, be able to kind of re-examine that experience in and of itself and take bits and pieces of it away and apply it to my, to my life. But I think there's, you know, what I discovered was there were things that came up for me that I didn't know and that were transformational for me. And maybe I did know, I just wasn't paying attention or I wasn't open to it, or I just didn't see it coming. I wonder how many, how many, you know, in your experience, when you host these trips and these you know, you have these men come on, come through this, this experience. How many of them are, are, are aware of that transformation they need or want to go through? How well developed is that, uh, for, for your guests and, or is it, and is the trip itself really part of developing all that, uh, through the process? Yeah, there, I would say a, big percentage of the people who participate, they come with the initial feeling of a desire to get closer to the food that they eat. Uh, I almost always hear that that's where I started. And it's a really great introduction point to, to say yes to an experience like this. And then of course, much more comes beyond that. You know, for me, it was a transformational experience accidentally. And for many of the participants who come on sacred hunting trips, they, they get other types of medicine that they didn't even like sign up for or know was possible. And then there's a whole host of, of men, you know, I, I've, I've had the pleasure and, you know, luxury one might say to work with a lot of people who have already done a lot of self work on themselves and, you know, people who have gone through some pretty serious things themselves and they have a level of self-awareness and self-reflection. And uh, so they come in knowing that this is going to be something that's going to change my life. And what are the lessons that are for me to, to grow and learn? And so there's so many you know, such a wide range of where people come from. But in my experience, I make it pretty explicit and pretty well, like well known where I'm coming from. This is about more than just learning the skill of mm -hmm. hunting. 
And so I think most people are like at the very least open to more than that. Yeah. I imagine that's extraordinarily rewarding for you when you see people come through and they're able to extract the value and the lessons and the things that come, that come with the trip. I, I, I know there was a ton of that for me and getting somebody that may be a little bit more in touch with it, that can maybe just peel back one or two more layers. I wonder what it is. I mean, again, rewarding or feeling a sense of fulfillment is one thing, but I wonder what is it that you're taking away from seeing people go through this transformation? I mean, obviously there's a, there's a, this is, this is what you're doing. This is, there's also, this is how you're putting food on your table, but that's not the calling that's part of it, right? That's a, that's kind of a, a piece to it. But what is it? What is it that you take away, Monsal? Why do you, why are you so driven to do this? Well, it's a great question. And one, one thing I found is there's, I forget what the, what the exact quote was, but basically it was something along the lines of anyone has to be in order to grow. Anyone has to kind of like punch above their weight class punch at their weight class and punch below their weight class. And I'm by no means ahead of anybody who comes on a sacred hunting experience. In fact, most of the time, most people are considerably older than I am, but in this particular world of hunting in a reverent way, I am a leader and by guiding other men in this experience, I personally get to learn so much about masculinity. I get to learn so much about um, what it means to be a leader. So it's forcing me into a leadership position. And it's, it's really, the environment is a pretty chaotic and intense environment. I mean, we are using weapons that are deadly. Many people for their first time, we're using plant medicines that are mind altering. We are doing it, you know, in groups of men, there's lots of circumstances we can't control Mm -hmm. wild hogs, you know, Mm -hmm. other animals, snakes, spiders, which we had plenty (laughs) of experiences with. And so when you put this all together, it forces a level of maturity and leadership and uh, self-awareness in order for me to continue to, to show up effectively. And so, you know, when someone asks, what do I get first and foremost, I'm working through still so much of the stuff that put me in this position in the first place. You know, if you, when we get into my story, you'll see some of the things that were the hardest for me is like, what is the definition of a man? What, what is, what is, what does it actually mean when I don't have anyone who's guiding me? Well, now in guiding, I'm actually learning further and deeper what it means and where our greatest shadows and suffering is, is usually where our greatest gifts are. And that is why I feel so excited and lit up to, to have these experiences. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the joy I'm sure you get from seeing people come through their own transformation, but that also the, and, and them extracting value from what is it you're providing with regard to an experience. And sometimes that might not even be saying anything or giving them any words of advice. It just might be just 
holding the space to have them there to experience it on their own to then walk away and have space on your own to kind of reflect back on that and grow from watching other people grow. I I can't think of too many things uh, in life where you get that, that kind of a reward for the inputs that you get, the outputs are equal or even maybe greater um, to the inputs that you put in. You, you, you said something there about kind of landing on this by mistake. I'm curious what you mean by that. Well, yeah, I personally came to this practice of hunting from the, if first and foremost, it was like just calling me. So I didn't really have a particular reason at the time. Ostensibly, my reason was I'd be interested in getting a closer connection to my food. Mm -hmm. And so I went about that process and I kind of prepared to go hunting. And it just so happened that I had a men's ayahuasca retreat a month before I went hunting my first hunt. And, and then I had another ayahuasca retreat after my first hunt. And so because it was bookended by these really powerful transformational and highly um, like indigenous rites of passage, uh, it really set the context for me for hunting to be way more special than just a hobby. And that was not intentional. I didn't intentionally schedule those things around those dates. It was, it was all accidental and well, accidental in my human mind. Of course, I think in a cosmic way, it was very intentional as part of the realizations and transformation that I needed to go through in order to bring this offering to, you know, more people, but it was, yeah, it went from, from, a, from a interest uh, later in life to becoming a full blown like calling. So usually when this happens and you, you kind of realize that and how much more there is to or substance and depth there is to the thing that you're becoming very, very passionate about, you start to seek out information. You start to seek out knowledge. You start to seek out additional experiences. And often we, we look to mentors or, uh, you know, maybe, father figures, patriarchs, whoever in the family that can provide this, maybe this knowledge in in this particular case as a man, but you had already mentioned, like you didn't have influence there. So I wonder as you're starting to, and I apologize, I used the word mistake. I should have said accident because that is what you said. As you accidentally kind of land into this and you're realizing it could be so much more powerful and so much deeper for you, where do you go? Like who, where do you start looking for answers, direction, uh, foundation structure to what it is that you feel and you think is out there, but you're not quite sure yet. And you want to explore more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've read my book. I have, so yeah. maybe, yes, you've got some context. I, again, accidentally didn't know this at the time, but when I was 22, 23 years old, I was, similarly just called to go do sweat lodges and i went to do the sweat lodges i was still in college i was still in a dorm room i don't know how i got interested in this but friday nights people were going out partying and i was 
staying in so that Saturday morning early, I could go spend time with mostly 60 to 80 year old people who do this sweat lodge. So I'm this young kid and I just, I meet this guy, Will Tegel, his, his, uh, you know, Native American name is Starheart. And at the time, 22, 23 years old, I didn't really have the maturity where I could appreciate what he was the wisdom he was sharing and things like that. And, but I knew at a felt sense that this guy had something special and I just kept saying yes and kept saying yes. And so I've worked with him for eight years and every time I would have this powerful ayahuasca experience, I would go back and talk with him. Then I would have this powerful hunting experience and I would go back and talk with him. And he didn't, tell me anything to do. He just gave me perspective and he guided my own relationship to the different practices. You know, when I did ayahuasca and I had the powerful experience, he told me something. He said, the plants chose you. The plants wanted a certain message from this collective consciousness that is the earth to come through with the human language that I could be a conduit for and many little things like that helped guide me to a place where I felt like I wanted to share this with other people and I wanted to create a documentary on it and I wanted to do all these things. And so I really found the majority of my guidance in human form from will And he, you know, he's currently, he's 81 years old, super wise, just his presence is magnetic. And it's a real reflection, I think, of a lot of the work that I'm doing because sure, I read books and I read his book and I read all kinds of things, but we're such beings of community. community. Mm -hmm. And we had so much of our wisdom and guidance come from elders in the history of our species. And so to have that resource, I was incredibly lucky. And and most people, unfortunately, don't have a mentor or an elder to teach them, and especially not with as much wisdom as he had. I mean, you know, this is a guy who was in Martin Luther King Jr.'s congregation. He's a Methodist minister. He's a trained psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. You name the wisdom tradition. He's deep into it and super humble. Yeah, so you've got yourself, I, I don't know, is it fair to say he's almost like a, well, he's a mentor, right, to you, but is he almost like a, some might look at that as like, well, that sounds like my grandfather, you know, in a way. So you're kind of, kind of looking up. And I, you've already mentioned you didn't have that, influence in your life in the way that you, you may have needed it. And I think maybe it's just, maybe it's a a good time to kind of change gears for a second and just kind of talk about the things that maybe led up to the sweat lodges and the things that you went through as a young man that made you maybe a little bit more open to exploring these kinds of things. Cause for a lot of, a lot of people out there, particularly men, they might find this as like, well, I feel like we're missing something here. There's, there's, there could be, this doesn't sound typical and it isn't, it's not, it's not typical. You really do have a a compelling story of, you know, that, and again, I, that 
the testimony that you have, I think brings, um, a different context to where, where you may be coming from. But if I could just maybe set it up, I, I have read your book. Uh, it's not, no surprise. It's, it's called sacred hunting, rekindling an ancient spiritual practice. And it's interesting that you, you connect a spiritual practice with the act of hunting, because again, going back, I don't think a lot of people might do it that way. They might look at it as a, you know, it's a practice where I maybe get together with my brothers or I get together with my family and we go out and we do these family hunts, whatever. And so there's a connection to that, but maybe not to the spiritual side of it. Uh, so a different, different perspective, but you wound up in, in, in some situation, in a situation early in life that ultimately wound you up in prison. And there was, there's some, there's some things about that and some things that you, you learned along the way. I wondered if we could talk about that for a couple of minutes. Totally. Yeah. I mean, to this point in my life, best thing that ever happened to me mm. and provided me with a different type of rite of passage that gave me, well, forced me into a certain level of maturity and wisdom and reflection that I probably never would have had, but certainly would have taken a lot longer to have come into. Yeah. So I, I think that without, without going into all the details, um, effectively, there were some bad decisions made and, you know, by your own admission and you, you wound up in a situation that was outside of your control at this point. And, um, you, you, you know, the way I understand it is basically you were, you're in the state of Texas and you're, you're basically, you're locked up and you're not quite sure how long you're going to be there for, but you're pretty young at this point. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're in your early twenties. Yeah. 24. So this is after your experience with, in the sweat lodges. Correct. Yes. However, it is after I was arrested Gotcha. The arrest, the initial arrest is really what shook my world and, and had me open to sweat lodges and things like that. Right. So we get, so again, so you're, uh, you're, you're, you've had some experience, you have some kind of some insight beyond maybe uh, where the typical 22 or 20, 24 year old, you know, is at this point. I just wonder if we could kind of get into maybe your time in prison and the things you learn there is a compare and contrast to how you up and how you apply those things to your practice now in uh, being a little bit more connected to all the things that are going on around you and with the other people that, that, that come into these, these trips or these experiences. And, you know, I, I think the, the, maybe the, the, the quick question is for the people that are listening is this, how did you, how did you wind up in this situation, man? How did you wind up in, in prison as a, as a young man? Yeah. The, the root of how I ended up in prison was a story that I think is probably familiar for a lot of people. The root is I'm not good enough. And Mm -hmm. that story was the cause of a lot of mental turmoil. And I think many people have a challenging, you know, high school, adolescent year years, but it, it added to that challenge for me and that I'm not good enough showed up specifically with women. Mm. And so there was a definite 
you know, putting women, especially white women on a pedestal because of my mixed race. I had, you know, questions about my race and my worthiness from that perspective. And when, when it really came down to it, to, you know, basically what I say is I chased a woman to Europe Mm. and in order to do that, I stole documents and I sold them. And it was really, you know, this forgiveness that I have that I kind of speak with candidly took time. And, and really I could only, I could only ask forgiveness of others or let go of this, this, this thing as being something I'm guilty for or something like that, because I've kind of forgiven myself, but it was just a little boy who didn't feel good enough and felt like he had to find love and connection any way that he possibly could. Mm. And I think it's a pretty universally human, especially in this day and age feeling. I would agree. Yeah. Not feel good enough to desire to feel loved and to make some irrational and somewhat downright silly, you know, overcompensation. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, um, it doesn't excuse what I did. Definitely uh, no. deserved to have had the the consequences of my actions, and I forgive myself now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm grateful for for all that's come and the lessons that have come from that. So that's what put me in a prison cell. I'm not good enough, and this desire to be loved outside of myself. So you're there. I mean, there's other things I'm sure that are happening. You're a young man. You have a you had a, a family of of some sense. What's happening with the family during this time, and how are you dealing with that? Well, from the very beginning, uh, and when I say beginning, I was arrested when I was 20 years old. So I'm arrested when I'm 20. My family's very challenged by the situation of course my parents rally behind me but they're very disappointed so so they were supportive at some level just of they still loved you it wasn't like you weren't okay okay but there was challenges you know and they're very and they're human and so you know the same month that i got arrested my dad's younger brother died uh from basically like alcoholism and that was a lot for my dad. And so my dad had some moments. I distinctly remember him, you know, blowing up and, and, and kind of sharing his frustration with me and all fully warranted at the end of the day, they were willing to go above and beyond to protect me, to do the best that they could for me, regardless of my mistakes. And, and I'm very grateful to them for that love and care. Uh, but it was tough. It was a challenge. And, you know, there were things that very much bonded my entire family together. I think now, especially we're even closer than we were before. Uh, You know, they had to take out money from my sister's college uh, savings account in order to pay lawyers and things like that. And that's led me to this day to pay to help for my sister's college tuition and things like that. So it's, yeah, been very rewarding, but for my family, it was very challenging. My mom, uh, she's Indian. Indian, it's a very, it's a culture of, 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 you know, 
what people think of you and status and, and things like that. And so there was a lot of uh, shame around, around it. Uh, some of which I think she still holds to this day. And the going to prison was pretty tough. My sisters were quite young, so they're significantly younger than I was. And they didn't really understand what was going on. My parents didn't really let them know exactly what was happening. And it created a lot of challenge for my entire family. My grandfather had cancer and they, you know, I was pretty sure he was going to die before I got out of prison. So it was a pretty tumultuous time for, for everyone, uh, given the situation. And I had to surrender to that. So you're, what starts is probably a very common challenge for a young man, right? Escalates into through some decision-making escalates into this, this situation. And now you're, now you're in a not so common challenge behind bars and having to wrestle with all kinds of new challenges. What's the, when did, when did it become a reality for you that this could be, this could be a long-term thing for you? Like you've made, you've made this mistake and how long are you going to have to pay for it now? Yeah, it became a reality when, my lawyers told me they don't know how long it's going to be that, that, I, that I was going to be there. That's fucking and, scary, man. That's scary. Exactly. Yeah. So they had kind of an, initially suggested that uh, I got an eight year sentence. So they, wow. initially had, yeah, it was pretty significant. And they had initially suggested I wouldn't do the full amount of time. The judge is going to take me out after a certain number of months. Mm. And the, those number of months, they came and they went and still nothing. And so I was in a place of forced surrender. Right. Like I had all these expectations. I was counting down the days and my, one of the greatest things that I learned about myself and about life in prison was the power and the self-sovereignty and agency that I can have over my life, regardless of my situation. That's interesting. And I quote Viktor Frankl because he was in a far more intense experience. He was in a concentration camp, but he says something akin to like the one last freedom that humans have is the freedom to have the mindset that is healthy for us. And is going to like get us through a challenging time. That's the one thing that we have mm. left. And at the time, I basically had one decision, which was I'm here. What am I going to do with the time that I'm here? And how do I make the best of the time that I'm here? And that flip from resistance expectations, counting down the days, like eating poorly to I'm here for an undeterminate amount of time, but it's not going to last forever. It's impermanent. And in this moment, I, there is, there's a right action and there's a wrong action. Is this a a matter of survival Munsell, or is this a, is this going beyond that? I just wonder how you do that. Like, how do you take action in that moment, what are the things that you put in place in order to make it to, to, to I guess, to, 
to get through? I mean, what what do you do at this point with the skill access, the things that you have and don't have? What does a person do? I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, well, I'll just give you some examples. I we did have a library, and so I stopped watching TV to kill the pain and distract me and numb my brain. And I started reading every possible book that I could get my hands on. And there was a lot of good books. I mean, there was like the Ramayana, the power of now uh, flow by Michaeli Csikszentmihalyi. So like all these self-improvement books, growth oriented books. All right. I'm going to read those instead of watching TV, then working out, you know, there's, there's not any equipment, but you know what? I can, do push-ups and I can do air squats and I can walk, man. I used to walk up and down, up and down, up and down the bunk beds until gang members would get upset with me and tell me to stop walking next to their bunks. And so, you know, I'm putting on miles and miles and miles in this tiny little jail cell. Cause I'm just walking in circles. Interesting. And so there's just, there was this almost relentless uh, desire to find the thing that I can control and make the best of it. It's interesting. The, the fact that what you chose to do is nourish both your brain and your body, which I think are direct connection to the soul um, and, and the things you chose to do all I guess it's just that you, 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 cho- you choose to, to improve yourself by nourishing your brain and your body through movement, through exercise, through knowledge, uh, through exposure to different things, difficult, new, um, enlightening, whatnot. Some of the things that you just mentioned there in terms of the books that you read, but there's, there's things happening around you. I'm sure. I mean, was the moment that you heard from your lawyers that, Hey, we don't know how long you're going to be in there. Or maybe was it the moment when the day came and passed? Was that your scariest moment as well as obvious? I think what you're alluding to is kind of the awakening moment as well. Were those two in the same or were there other really scary moments uh, that made you question whether or not you were going to get through to the other side? Well, there was, there was, yeah, there was the rock bottom moment, which gave me the, the opportunity to bounce up from that. And really that moment, I think I described in my book where I'm on the bunk bed, I'm covering myself up and I'm crying. That was, you know, the, the, the rock bottom moment where I, I, I didn't, I, there was so much, I had to let go of so much of what I thought was going to happen and everything that it, it allowed me to have, it allowed me to recognize that I get to paint the future. Mm. And that was, that was an empowering experience. It's, 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 it's paradoxical, but the, the moment when I completely realized that I have no power and no control was the moment that I was completely empowered. Right. So you're, let's talk about the transition now. So you're, you're recognizing these things and there's a lot of self-improvement happening. Uh, and you don't know, right. You, again, you don't know 
you know, you've got a sentence of eight years and you don't know when you're getting out. Did you know what you wanted to do when you got out? Did you have a mission at that point? Talk about the transition out of there and how that happened. What was that like? I mean, were you just basically informed one day through a phone call or an email or something like this? Somebody tell you this and how, how did, how would, how did the transition look um, from there? Yeah. Um, It was funny. It took a couple, it only took probably a month or so from the moment when I finally surrendered to having it come full circle. And basically they were letting me know that they were going to let me out Mm -hmm. in a matter of weeks. You know, again, what you resist persists. As soon as Mm -hmm. I stopped resisting, the universe is like, all right, you've learned your lesson now. Interesting. We'll we'll let you out. And of course, red tape and all that kind of stuff. It took a decent amount of time before it actually happened, but I was no longer caring about like when the actual date was. I was just like, it's happening. It's happening soon. At the time in my, in my awareness and consciousness, I was, I was actually, I was running a business and I was running a business from prison at some level. Uh, it was an e-commerce business. It was in nootropics. So it was, you know, supplements that were improving mental performance. And I was on pay phones chatting with business managers and all that kind of stuff, trying to keep the business running along. And in fact, it did great. It was, I love that. It was, it was, um, it was generating, you know, plenty of revenue and profit while it was gone. And but I, but I was, I was growing at a, at a place where like my, my soul, if you want to call it, that was kind of growing beyond my profession. Mm. And it took another, you know, three, two to three years for me to have my profession, like catch up with where my soul was, was, was operating from and it took those experiences of ayahuasca and hunting like i mentioned but as soon as i came out of prison i first and foremost was grateful for just about everything Mm. and then had a little bit of ptsd because i felt a lot i felt weird around women i felt weird around so many people behind me just carrying that yeah that is you don't just turn that off right no. Yeah. People behind me and stuff was a thing. Even to this day, actually, it doesn't bother me, but I subconsciously end up in situations where I can see everything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at a restaurant or what have you it just makes me feel more comfortable. And very quickly I was starting to be called to different practices. Okay. I didn't know this at the time, but I was called to jujitsu. So I did jujitsu for a couple of years Then I'm called to acro yoga and then I'm called to hunting. And in retrospect, what happened was I got out of prison and I am being called to these practices to actually learn what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. Because I go through prison and my whole system is like, well, clearly you did not choose correctly. We got some wisdom through this experience. We got some rite of passage here, but we still need some, some practices that are going to 
paint this picture with more clarity and depth. So I started doing these practices. So let's talk about the practices and what they're teaching you. Uh, you know, I, I, when I think of hunting, when I think of jujitsu, when I think of uh, yoga, I think discipline, I think consistency, I think confidence, I, f- I think courage. Uh, I, those are things that immediately come to mind in terms of what you're learning through the practice and you're relating it to being a man. I'm, uh, does that resonate or were there other things? What can you share? So it does. Re- all those resonate at some level and, and there were other things for jujitsu. There's the clear component of physical like confidence in myself, confidence in being able to hold myself, the the humility that comes with getting my butt kicked Mm -hmm. consistently over Mm -hmm. and over again. Uh, I also found uh, a lot of, a lot of healing in the touch that came from acro yoga. Mm -hmm. So acro yoga, for those who don't know, it's like acrobatics. Usually with a, a male has a female partner and they're doing like different acrobatics stuff. And again, I was, I had this very disconnected relationship from women. And so this was a practice where I was touching them. It was sensual and it was consent. Like I had consent, but I also had to have responsibility with my actions in a very, very clear way. Like I could touch them in a way where we could both feel that there was an energetic, like, you know, exchange and it was pleasant, et cetera, maybe even flirty, but clear boundaries, respect those boundaries. Uh, and so it just gave me a, an, a real outlet to navigate. What does it mean to have consent, create safety for myself mm. and for others, be physically responsible and things like that. Whereas most men learn mm. physical intimacy with women in sex. It's mm. like you, you just get thrown in the deep end um, or most people get thrown in the deep end. And so that was a really healing practice for me to start to navigate those things. And then Again, hunting was another one of those practices that just felt like the a next step. And at the time, I didn't realize it had anything to do with masculinity. I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was my system's way of trying to embody virtues that come from the masculine mm. core of myself. And it's different to read a book. I read David Data's The Way of the Superior Man and everything. It's different to embody the virtues. Right. Yeah, you I look, I've read a lot of books too, man, on leadership, on, you know, it's a lot of self-help type type books, and they're all great books. And there are there's a lot of great information in there and there's a lot of great takeaways. But at the end of the end of the day, that's somebody else's story. That's somebody else's advice based on whatever context they're coming to the table with. And it's not necessarily your story. It's not your experience, at least not yet. You can take those pieces of wisdom and apply them to your experiences as you go. But let's let's but it's not my story. So, it, you know, I need to eventually you're going to have to go out and em, employ these 
skills or tools that you learn in your reading or in your study. So let's talk about the hunting. You may have said this before, but had you hunted before or it, in, and if not, if, if so, like, how did you kind of get introduced to it? But if not, like, where, how did this start? Because this is obviously, you know, what you're doing now and you're very skilled at it. So I, I just wonder, how did you jump into this? Well, the irony is I jumped into this out of no help from my father, which is ironic because once I started hunting, I found out that he had hunted his entire childhood. Wow. He had a hunter's education card from when he was five years old mm. and it was a huge part of his childhood, but it was so associated with the abuse that his father inflicted upon him, physical, verbal, et cetera, emotional, that he didn't ever speak about it. And he didn't ever feel comfortable speaking about it. And so when someone says healing ancestral trauma, this is a perfect example of it. He wow. couldn't even talk about hunting. So I had to find it completely on my own in my own journey of exploring what does it mean to be a man? And now I can lead him and I take him on trips hunting. That's, a, that's amazing to come full circle. But when I was first drawn to it, I luckily I was in a space where I was, in the nootropics and biohacking space and such. So I knew Ben Greenfield and I knew that Ben hunted. So I asked Ben, you know, how, how would you suggest I hunt? And he hooked me up with a guy. And so it was really kind of simple to just set up a hunt and go on someone's land and, and just pay to do that. And I was blessed again by my prison experience because my hunting could not happen with a rifle. I had to use a bow because I'm a felon. Mm -hmm. Felons can't use rifles. So I'm practicing with the bow and it, I have to become far more proficient. Oh, it's I, way different than rifle hunting in, in, in so many ways. Yeah. Like an order of magnitude harder. And I'm investing more time, investing more energy. I'm really, really, you know, putting a lot into this. And so as, as I say, for everyone who comes on these experiences, the more intentionality you put in, the more you have to sacrifice and prepare, the more that experience provides for you. And that's exactly what happened for me. I had spent so much energy and time and everything. And I had, for the first time in my life during the ayahuasca experience, I had a connection to a higher power. And I asked that higher power for guidance for the first time in my entire life. And that guidance was provided on the first hunt. So I asked for a clean kill, one shot, one kill. I got one shot, one kill, very statistically improbable. Right. For that. And there was all these emotions and feelings that had come out prior to, and during the experience itself, uh, it was a super powerful moment for me. So this is, has this, immediately starts, it has to start evolving right to where it is now. So I'm curious how it kind of got to where you are now. So we can, we can talk about the sacred hunting experience and what you've been able to put together and, and provide people. Maybe walk us through that journey a little bit from the first experience, you know, and the, it's very intimate when you're bow hunting, it's very intimate. You, you have to be very close to the animal uh, as opposed to rifle hunting. Not that you 
don't get ever get close with rifle hunting, but I mean, things start to matter, right? Your, your ability to understand nature, your ability to understand the environment, the terrain that you're in a little bit of a different level at your, your scent and covering that up, how you're tracking an animal, uh, things, things are different. They're, they're definitely more, you know, different. And then again, you are very close uh, in very close proximity to the animal when you finally do make that kill. And uh, obviously the margin for error in all of those things is much, much smaller. So I'm curious how it evolved over time to where it is now. Yeah. So that, that first hunt was, it was super beautiful and, you know, one shot, one kill, a lot of patience. I, I basically waited for four full days, no opportunity. And, you know, the last day I had an opportunity, but it was very up close and personal. I got to see the, the blood, you know, foaming from the animal. I got to see it writhing around. I got to see the, the family of that animal with a completely different demeanor than when they entered my area and it had a really significant impact on me in a way that uh, I kind of jumped into the deep end even further. And I decided, well, I've been on one hunt. I might as well go on the next step. So I signed up to go on a public hunt, public land hunt for elk in the mountains of Idaho, where it was incredibly challenging. I was way out of my depth. I ended up injuring the animal. It ended up being a very emotional, very challenging experience on every possible level, a journey for sure. And that was the second hunt. Very naive for me to think that that was my next step. When some yeah, people jumping from the, jumping into the deep end is to say the least, <laughs> I think, did you say Idaho? I went to Idaho in the mountains yeah. in public land, yeah, archery elk. It's right. probably one of the hardest things, you know, you can do. Yeah, that's you're going to level hundred right now. But you're yeah. going from you're going to you're going to level one hundred right now. If I could just maybe go back to a second, I mean the way you just described the first hunt and you know what you experienced there, you know, it could be people listening just kind of thinking man, that sounds so brutal. That sounds awful. You know, how could somebody do this? You know, I guess my question is, is what, what were you feeling when you saw these things happen? Um, I, I've had my own experiences there. I'm just curious, curious to your first experience there with how that happened as on target, literally and figuratively as you were there to experience these things after the fact, were you in touch with your emotions then? Did you really know what was going on or is, was these th- or are these things that came up later? They definitely came up later. They impacted me at some level because I still vividly remember them. So somewhere in my psyche, in my body, it was clear to me that this family of antelope were a family and they were happy and they were playing and they were enjoying one another's company and, and doing things that are very similar to what a a human family Mm -hmm. might do. And then when they sniffed their dead relative and they realized that this aunt or sister or mother was not coming with them, they left in a completely different demeanor and different tone. And at the time it didn't, create tears or sadness in a way that I think they would now, but, but it impacted me enough that it, it, it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And 
the there was a lot of pride and excitement and I definitely felt those more positive things because I had set my mind to something and I had done it, but I was not in touch with the emotions, the, 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 the sadness and the, the guilt or the, uh, the grief really that that experience can open up until later. And those intense emotions are really what bring a certain level of sacredness to the experience because, you know, someone once told me the sacred are the things that pull at your heartstrings and that could be joy and laughter, but it's also pain and suffering and sadness and grief. And so for me to have a direct access point to it now something that's been trained but also something that's 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 a gift of mine now that creates an environment to invite other people into that Mm. grief and to their own grief regardless of the context for me it's very much a an access point to grief. I see an animal that I have killed and I don't just see that animal. I see every animal that I saw driving to that place that was hit by a car. I see every animal that is run over by a combine on some farmland in order to produce our crops. I see a dead animal and I am reminded of all the dead animals that that exists in order for us to have the lives that we do. And so it's an access way to this, this deep upwelling of grief that, that I experience because I experience what the collective is experiencing. You know, it's, 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 it's Gaia, the earth, whatever you want to call it, crying for all her lost beings. And I'm just a conduit for that. I've seen, I've seen you act out in the field actually, and seeing dead animals that were not killed by the hunters that, that were killed by some other, um, some other means, some were obvious, some maybe more obvious, some, some not, and how you honor those animals out there. Uh, that was impressive to me. I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that. You know, when you see, I think you just mentioned, see an animal dead on the side of the road, it can maybe bring a certain amount of sadness oh that's sad that was a beautiful deer that got hit by a car or whatever um but it's fleeting i mean you're driving by at 60 miles an hour or whatever and you're going down the road and a mile down the road you never thought of it again i mean i can't remember maybe that's not true but i I don't i don't think i can remember more than two or three dead animals that i've seen on the road ever and i've probably seen a hundred of them it just doesn't it just doesn't really stay with me but i've seen you take uh, this sort of this next level approach with time with the animal and um, and honoring the animal, whether that even be pulling it off to the side of the road um, into more of a dignified position or place and uh, and uh, opening up space for it. I, it's interesting to me. I, I don't think many people kind of go there. I'm, I'm interested, I'm curious, just had you had experience with much experience with death before? This the hunting experience? No, I didn't. And it opened up mm. a whole portal of relationship to death, you know, relationship with my own death, mortality of my family, mm-hmm. 
what I contribute to as far as death is concerned. And I think one of the, if I had to provide a gift for how it is that I connect with those things so readily, you know, it's just, I'm I'm emotionally sensitive. Mm -hmm. And for a long time as a man, again, back to this conversation of what does it mean to right. be a man? I define that as being a flaw or I define that as being a, a problem to be fixed or effeminate or something along those lines. I think many, many probably feel the same way, man. Yeah. And it wasn't really until I could bring that sensitivity and that those emotions into the context of sacred hunting that I could see that it is one of the gifts that I have the gift that gives other people permission that in reality to be perfectly comfortable and uh, with one's own emotions and feelings and vulnerabilities is the definition of courage. Correct. It's like, I don't really care what you think of me. You can't use this to hurt me because this is just authentically who I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if anyone's struggling with that, I hope that that's a a nugget that they take from this, but it, it, it has helped me to connect with death more readily. And even to this day, I have, I think because it's a practice, I have such a close relationship to death personally I look forward to it. I see it as a release. I see it as a return back as a gift to the earth. Mm. I embrace it when I see it. Yesterday, there was a squirrel in the road that was being consumed by a few vultures. And I excitedly told my friend and the child she was with, and she was like, ew. And it didn't even dawn on me that it would be gross. Natural. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it, it's, and that's a great gift too, to have a closeness with death has changed my whole relationship to COVID. Uh, I, I, you know, that was, I, I don't want to get too far ahead cause I do have a question for you. I still want to un- unpack a little bit more of this, the hunting experience and have you walk us through it a little bit more, but yeah, I think uh, particularly Western civilization has a, to me, sort of an odd relationship with death and odd meaning, we're constantly fighting, fighting it. Um, and again, I don't want to get too far into it, but rather than embracing it, not being happy about it, not, not that we shouldn't grieve about it, not that it, it doesn't create a, an immense amount of impact on a lot of different levels, but I think our relationship with it, our, co- the collective, we, uh, our, or us is, is odd to me. I, and, and I think I'm, I've, I'm much different than a lot of people. And sometimes I feel maybe weird or disconnected from people because I do have a little bit of a different relationship with it or different views on it. Um, And it's something that you learn on these hunts, whether you're prepared for it or not, whether you're getting more in touch with it or uh, you're definitely going to be exposed to it, or at least that's part of the experience um, for, for many. Uh, However, in my own experience, I, I, I experienced it through somebody else, you know, taking an animal, but um, uh, maybe we can kind of just move into the, the sacred hunting experience and kind of what it's about. And if I could maybe set it up, um, 
you know, what I, what I found really impressive about the experience was the, the entryway into it, uh, and the being set up properly with, with intention, um, also what to expect, um, from the, I want to say the intimacy to the connection of what was happening with the people, um, and, and within the group, the men in the group. Um, and, and that being said was we weren't talking about hunting before. I mean, there's, there's a gear list, right? You got to be prepared. You got to be prepared for the thing that you're going to be doing. But the prep work, the prep work was interesting for me. There was some reading, there was some sharing, there was some journaling. Um, and then, you know, we got there, we kind of, we jumped right into the things that you do, you know, the outcomes that happen when you do hunt, breaking down animals and, um, and preparing to, to take the life of an animal and that, that being sighting in your weapons and that, that, that would all sound, you know, sort of normal or I guess, uh, compulsory, right. If you're going to go on a hunting trip, but some of this other stuff was, was different. I wonder if you could just talk about how you came up with the structure, um, of, and, and talk through the structure of what the sacred hunting experience is. Yeah, totally. So first, as far as structure and stuff is concerned, the, we have a limited time together. And so I want to really emphasize and, and amplify the experience with the intentionality that goes into preparation. The time that it takes to not just get all your gear ready, but, you know, go shooting your rifles as you guys did acquire all the different gear and plan the trip and all that kind of stuff, but also some of the other invitations. What does it feel like to not eat for 24 hours or 48 hours and be in the reflection of how grateful you are when you do eat and how grateful you are when, when you, especially when, when I have, you know, long three day fast and I finish the fast with some wild game, I'm just, so in gratitude of that animal sacrifice. So it's a way of amplifying that and, and, you know, different other practices and things like that, that I provide are all meant to be adding to the intention. Um, The, the day, you know, we have our intention setting call, Mm -hmm. which is a way to create some group cohesiveness to start the start the invitation to not just be a man who's there isolated in order to get a job done for hunting, but a man who's part of a tribe for a weekend and a community to feel like this is not just a place to kill an animal in a sacred way, but it's also a place to share what happened with my wife that is causing me some emotional turmoil. And I can share that with other men because we've all, you know, agreed to that this is a container for that. Yeah, it's a safe place. And and then having sending you all without ruining too much for people, sending sending you guys a gift beforehand mm-hmm. that forces you to get out in nature, mm-hmm. forces you to start that process of disconnecting from you know the material world that we find ourselves in and start entering the, the the natural world that is so nourishing and healing mm-hmm. and then when the hunt itself comes my my real desire is is how to create step by you know with, with certain you know moments uh, like aha moments for people 
certain opportunities for aha moments and everyone's aha moment is going to be different, but it's intended to, to create that transformation. And, th- and that's the way, that's the reason why it's, you know, outlined in the way that it, it is. Uh, and definitely a lot of thought has gone into it and uh, a lot of practice has gone into it mm-hmm. at this point in order to create, to create that kind of thing. And I have a lot of openness to, to changing it, but I, I, I do think I've stumbled into a pretty good. Uh, yeah, man. I, I don't know about that. I don't know if, you, you know, why fix it if it ain't broke, you know, <laughs> as they say, maybe you could talk a little bit about Well, you actually, well, you have talked about kind of some of the prep work and the, and the intention setting and whatnot. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about the ceremony you employ within the experience, the, the importance of the ceremony and the, the process itself. Sure. Yeah. So the, 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 a few different things. One is it's, I find it very important to set a really strong container in these kinds of in-person experiences, especially when we're going deep, we're, you know, not having access to our phones, we're sharing things that might feel vulnerable. And so the, the, the serum, you know, the ceremony that happens on Saturday is a continuation of that process. The first day we have an opening circle, we connect, we use different types of plant medicines, tobacco, hoppe, things like that. And, and then we have another opportunity on Saturday during these experiences to go into a full plant medicine ceremony. And it's in noble silence and it is intended to, you know, these, these, a lot of plant medicines as them are ways of amplifying what is already true for you mm-hmm. and perspective on what is already something that you're wrestling with, considering, pondering, et cetera. And so for me, bringing that into bringing that plant medicine into this context is a way for people to further deepen what is most true for them, which has come from the hunting experience. And that can look so different depending on the person. One person, they might have, as is the case this past hunt uh, that I had a few weeks ago, you know, I was with somebody and he had killed a year old deer Hmm. and he has a year old son and he got to experience a connection with the mother of that, that yearling deer and ask for forgiveness and apologize and share thanks for the sacrifice. And that was a very important, like transform it transformational experience for him to go through, which was completely related to him and his own kids and his own that morning. Then you've got this other guy who's in this place of, I need to kill something in order to like be successful. I've got this story that I need to kill something to be successful. And I haven't done that yet. And I'm feeling anxiety. And, and why do I feel that anxiety? Well, you know, and they've got their own process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these are all things that are likely happening for these men already at some level. 
they're introspective, they're self-aware. That's why they're on these hunts. So it's, 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 it's there to some level. And then the plant medicine does what these beautiful plant technologies do, which is provide context Mm. and amplify what exists, that wisdom that's in all of us that we can learn and grow from. Yeah. There's definitely something there, man. Um, you know, it, it, I think in a lot of, in our world, it could be, it could be looked at as taboo. Uh, and it's, it could be scary to some people. It could be, uh, again, just completely off limits to others. And I, I hate that it is that way. I wish, I, I wished it was people were a little bit more open to, let's just say the science was a little bit more open to exploring this. Cause I think, I think there's something there. In fact, I've even heard you say, I believe in the spiritual practice, the ancient practice of using plant medicines, some civilizations are even referred to these plant medicines as like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've heard you say chaos medicine or the term like ordeal medicine. And that being it's, it helps you I don't know, effectively deal with the things that are, that are there that you may not be fully open to dealing with otherwise. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, totally. I mean, I've definitely heard combo, which is the frog toxin described as such a kind of a chaos uh, type of medicine or ordeal medicine. And I mean, there's a reason why people say they have bad trips, right? And those bad trips, however you want to define it as bad, I I don't really necessarily uh, ascribe to that belief system that there is a thing as a bad trip. But those challenging moments are chaos into the system. And there's a healthy way to deal with that chaos, which is, in a healthy container, knowing that you're supported and safe, but you know, you're still on this ride and you're going to keep going on the roller coaster till it's over mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, unhealthy versions, which is kind of doing it on your own and going through that without any kind of psychic support and things like that, which can be a little more dangerous. So I definitely recommend using facilitation and I'm not saying that I'm the guy to early, but Again, creating a safe container, you know, a container of safety with somebody that can help you through the experience to be there for you, you know, based on the things that you might be, you know, challenged or struggling with. I found it to be extraordinarily safe and um, had a fantastic experience. So I'd venture to say, you know, the, the, the gentleman around me shared that same experience, which is, it was very impactful for me. Uh, you know, I, just in kind of, coming out the other end, then there's obviously the process of hunting and taking an animal and breaking an animal down and and spending time talking about it. There's a a lot of education that happens and learning that happens on these experiences. If you've never hunted before, uh, you know, it's, and it's so intense. I mean, it happens when you're in a group, I think we had six people in our group. So, which meant, you know, and again, there were three animals for the weekend. And so there were multiple experiences and all of them different, but obviously, you know, the, the process in and of itself is the same, but the actual, uh, the act ends up ch- changing based on the size of the animal, the type of the animal and all these things. So you learn, you learn so much at, you know, in a, 
in a short period of time. It is very intense. And this exposure is just something that people just don't get anymore. I think when I say get anymore, they're, look, I, I think we kind of circle back to maybe a comment that you made earlier or, the, or, or a topic that we were kind of talking about, about earlier. And we're not exposed to these rites of passage uh, like hunting. When I say we, I mean a large majority of our population. Um, and, you know, if you're living in the city or living in the concrete jungle, if you will, or where you, you, you don't have access or we're, we're now at a point where our quote unquote elders didn't have that experience. So it's, they're not passing it on, you know, to, to the, to the next generation. I just wonder, you know, like, what is your take on sort of where our current civilization is as it relates to kind of the affluence that we live within that, that we, we see and, and, and this kind of this concept of, I need to be comfortable all the time. Like I suffering is not okay. Being uncomfortable is, is not okay. I, I, and I go so far and people have heard me say this before is that people are complacent and quite frankly, they're soft. You know, they just haven't experienced these challenges or these traumatic events in their life um, and that I don't want to be make a blanket statement and say people don't don't face trauma, but they're 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 not caught, they don't have these very different experiences um, to sort of set them up to have to struggle right and 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 have to kind of again come out the other end. Um, I just kind of wonder what your take on that is and how maybe sacred hunting can help somebody through this experience that they may not have had before. Yeah. Well, I do believe that one of the greatest challenges to society today, especially the society we find ourselves in the Western world is a lack of meaning, a lack of, of fulfillment that comes from in the past. It came from, surviving and just mm-hmm. the very active surviving created that meaning and fulfillment. And we are, you know, the macro society as a whole is very much reflected by the micro. And so if you see individuals who are in such a place where they have so much abundance and plenty that they gorge themselves and they literally become less capable and less healthy and less effective because of too much excess. Less, res- less resilient. Right. Then you have an example of what society looks like extrapolated more broadly. You know, we've got more everything in the United States. And there's a good argument to be made that we're on average less healthy. Our mental health is, is significantly impaired. Yeah. Impaired with anxiety, (laughs) depression, suicide rates are are very high community connection orientations Mm -hmm. is really, really challenging for a lot of people. And I, the way that I, believe sacred hunting supports uh, people is it introduces a way of being 
that's a very old, old way. And I don't think that we can go back to hunter gatherer times. I don't think that that would be possible or valuable. Uh, but we, as a species and as individuals, are changed in our being through relating to things in a different way. Like it's not just that there's a material difference between the wild meat that I eat. Right. So this, this wild game there's currently, I have a stew that's cooking in my stove in the oven that is filled with a deer. It's a fallow deer. It's a fallow deer that was killed by a Montana hunter and the hunter just wanted to take the trophy and go back to Montana and the body was left there. And I said, wow, what a beautiful way I can honor this animal that would have otherwise just gone to waste. And I'll honor it by taking the remains, basically taking the, the, the good stuff, stuff. <laughs> good stuff, but stuff that this guy didn't want. Somebody else's trash, right? Is your treasure. Right. And I have such a connection to that meat that's transcends just the material protein and vitamins and minerals and all that kind of stuff. All that's great. So yeah, it's probably healthier in certain ways if you like actually look at the meat, but the metaphysical difference that I have in that relationship, the, the pride in saying that this behavior is unacceptable to me and I'm not going to stand for it. The, gratitude that I have that this just dropped into my lap, the, the, the like honor that I have to like provide all that. How does that change the way my body reacts to that thing and all things that are alive in my day-to-day basis? And that's really what sacred hunting is imploring people or inviting people into because I went through a phase in my life where I was eating a paleo diet, for example, mm-hmm. a paleo diet. It's not uncommon. It's yeah. pretty common. Yeah. It's supposed to be like our paleolithic ancestors, but there's levels. That's mm-hmm. a great first step. If you've been eating McDonald's and things like that, it's a great first step. And then there's another layer deeper and there's another layer deeper. Right. And okay, now you can kill that animal yourself and you can have that relationship, that direct relationship. And that's really what I want to facilitate in, in a, in a more like broad sense. Right. How do I bring these old ways of being? It's almost like an operating system that humans evolved with. How do I bring that operating system to our modern world so that we can make better decisions, more loving, compassionate decisions, more, you know, realistic and, and empathetic decisions. Yeah. I think it, it also, what you described as kind of what our current society or civilization looks like is a a thing that's been removed from this, which I think the, the secret hunting group brings is this sense of community and the responsibility to the members of the community to or, or that they have to one another in the experience itself and in the sharing and in the supporting and so forth. I mean, we're, we're these individual people now that can kind of 
subsist without actually having this connection to anything. It's fucking odd to me. Like I, 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 I don't, I have to have it. I mean, I need solitude, but I also need community and I know who those members of my community are. And, uh, the, typically the rites of passage get passed down through the community in some way. Um, and if it's, you know, if you don't have, you know, a, a, a tribal elder to do it, there's, there's somebody, there's a big brother or, you know, somebody in the, in that, in the, in the community that's helping you with it. Um, again, the lack of experiences and not having those experiences as a, as a civilization now, because we are so, uh, we're sort of disconnected from nature. We're so disconnected from these, I don't know, ancient ways uh, that, that are still very utilitarian in a sense uh, in terms of the learning process and the, and the growth process as a human. And then uh, again, the, the, the learning about ourselves um, I don't know, man. I, what I see is you, you as a guy who's bringing people together and helping them to understand these things at a much deeper level. Um, and, 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 and they're probably coming into it a little bit more open than most people would. Um, and I think that's awesome because I think what that does is that that creates this community and it as as small as these groups are, they go out and they think a little bit more about this. And so in shifting gears about, with regard to community, I want to ask you, I, I eavesdropped on a conversation after our Saturday experience. Um, and I was just kind of stepping back from, and I shared this with Mike and my conversation with him, Mike Slemmy, but I had stepped back from the group at that point during the evening and just was kind of taking in everything that was going on around me. And it was, it was actually, it was a, it was an awesome time because I listened to some different conversations and I kind of honed in on yours as you were talking about community. Um, and this also, what I learned, learned about you was, is your connection to sort of this, the, the technology that we we're seeing out there right now in cryptocurrency and the concept of the NFT. Uh, and I heard you talking about building community and using the concept and the, or the prospect of the NFT to maybe bring people together from a conservation perspective. Um, and from, uh, again, bringing back community, but also bringing back this, these rites of passage, perhaps, uh, that people could share with one another. And I wondered if you could maybe walk us through your vision and what you, what you're, where, where does sacred hunting going? What are you trying to do with this long-term? Yeah. Good question. Thank you for providing that, uh, platter to, for me to serve, serve some dish out some, some vision. Um, yeah, I really see these experiences as I, I just followed my intuition on what felt most alive. And these experiences are creating a space for men and women to step into a, a new way of being. And I want to create that opportunity to explore and experiment with uh, new ways of being on a, on a bigger scale. And you know, there's some of the ideas that I had talked about when, when I, we were on the hunt together. And then there's some other ideas that I have. And, and when I think about the blockchain space and I think about uh, some of the things that people are doing, um, it's, it's, there's a lot ar around 
democratizing and making making uh, the way that we live in society more egalitarian. And that was a huge cornerstone of our hunter gatherer ancestors. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more egalitarianism. There was a lot more checks and balances that made it uh, impossible for one person to have so much power and so much wealth. And I don't think there's anything wrong with capitalism, but it, it, you know, there's a reason why they call it late stage capitalism. It's, it's gotten to a place where it hasn't evolved in the way that it's needed to evolve. And so I, I, there's a way to, to use that beautiful template and evolve it a bit using things like blockchain technology to democratize and, and make, you know, living more egalitarian and and uh, and so i have some ideas to to you know create a project that that brings some land under management and to be honest that might be under the blockchain as i continue to research and learn those technologies but it might also be using some other method because my organization sacred hunting is a nonprofit. it is technically considered a church and you know who the largest real estate uh, holders are in the world, the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And I will likely never get to that level, but imagine how far I can get if I, you know, aim big like that. Sure. And so to, to have a church uh, which is, you know, around sacred hunting, but it's emphasis is wholly on going back to our origins in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we relate to the earth, in the way that we relate to our version of higher power. uh, That is compelling to me. And when I think about higher power, you know, I had a, a Mormon father and Hindu mother, so couldn't be further apart. They were PhD, you know, scientists. So they really didn't practice either, but I had a, blank slate. And I got lucky enough that when I experienced higher power, it was through a felt experience Mm. and it was a personal relationship rather than an indoctrination. Exactly. And what I want to invite for people is a reconnection to that reconnect to your version of spiritual, you know, connection, your higher power, whatever is true for you. And let's do that together in community in a community that doesn't have to look like you know how it often does in these conscious circles which is let's get 40 acres and put a bunch of houses on it and just live off the grid and all that kind of stuff that's great too yeah yeah and uh that might play a big role but more than that like going deeper what does it look like to you know, have more trusting relationships with our friends. What is, here's a crazy idea, shared finances or things like that, right? It's like, I'm not ready for that. I don't have the consciousness where I'm ready for shared finances, but I have in my heart a vision where we can explore things like that and create a more beautiful world because, you know, we are, creatures uh, that are sharing and loving and compassionate and we have 
enough food in this country to feed everybody, but 50% of our food goes to waste. So what's the difference? The difference is we're not telling a story to ourselves and to others that is commensurate with the material resources that we have. And so I just want to help us at the individual level live in a certain way that creates the ability to tell, you know, greater stories. And hopefully that comes to some tipping point and we can do something at a bigger level, but for now, you know, I'm, I'm happy to change six men at a time and go from there. I love how you've related what we've gotten away from as society and culture um, and what, what the possibilities are. And you're going back to maybe more kind of an ancient way of thinking, maybe not so long ago, depends on how far you want to go back. You've related that and you've connected it with technology uh, and how that technology, the, the most recent kind of obscure, almost in some cases misunderstood parts of that technology might be able to bring us together as a whole. I love that way of thinking. It's forward thinking. It's a thinking about community uh, and it's thinking about getting back to the roots of who we are. And I think if more, more people did that, uh, we'd be in a, <laughs> we'd live in a better place and people would have more opportunity. And I mean, you just mentioned the food thing, you know, 50% of our food being, you know, going to waste. That's, we, we talked about mental health earlier and the challenges that we, that we have there and, and how much of that could be uh, positively impacted, not cured, not fixed, but positively impacted by, uh, thinking at a larger level and at a different level. And again, there, there's going to be people listening about that. That's fucking weird, man. You're so far out there, Scott Monsal. That's just not even no, like that's too. And to me, what that says is, is it's too big an idea for you right now. And you just haven't maybe been exposed or you're not ready. And, uh, you're not open maybe to, to the conversation at a greater level. Um, and I certainly okay. am. Yeah. I, uh, I'm fascinated. And maybe, maybe a sacred hunt's a place to go to, to, to get, to become open and, and discover these things. I got to tell you, it, it certainly exposed me some, to some things and made me, made me realize some things that I need to reconnect with. And interestingly, it was nature as I was very connected with it as a younger man. And, you know, I'm not, not old by most standards, but, uh, you know, getting reconnected with it at, at a different level, but at the same, which was really basic. It was just about being outside and being present and, uh, and taking it in and appreciating what was around us. And I feel, you know, there's so many people in the last couple of years, and I believe other people feel this too, man. And maybe they didn't have those, those experiences earlier in life or at any point in their life. And I have to tell you in the last two years, since we've effectively been on this sort of pseudo lockdown here, particularly in the United States, I've done a lot of traveling, went to a lot of national parks, went to a lot of outside spaces. You know what I see every time I go there, it looks like fucking Disneyland. There's people everywhere. They're shoulder to shoulder trying to get this experience, trying to get connected to nature in some way. And and they're just dealing with mass humanity in these in these very, quite frankly, sacred places. Uh, you know, and, and if I'm just talking about the Western United States here in California, you know, I I, I think about what people like uh, John C. Fremont or John Muir 
and Ansel Adams and capturing it for through imagery and things like that, the things that they were exposed to then and what we see or, you know, what they've written about. And now what we see now when we go to take those things or experience those things, uh, it seems to me people are somewhat desperate, whether knowingly or unknowingly desperate to get connected with it and maybe don't know how. So again, I'm fascinated by the concept and, uh, and never stop exploring that man. Cause I'm, I'm interested in, in, in knowing your thoughts and being a part of it as it, as it may, may come together over time. So I just think in, in wrapping up here, Mons, like, you know, what, what's next on the, on the sacred hunting agenda, what hunts do you have planned? What's going on? Are we shut down for the rest of this year? Do we have hunts happening? What, what does it look like going into next year? And, um, you know, what can you tell us? Yeah. 2021 was an amazing year. It was the first year that I've fully, fully committed to sacred hunting from January 1st until December 31st, my full-time income, everything in my life, um, kind of revolves around sacred hunting and that's an incredible gift. Right. And, you know, I facilitated 16 hunts this year, uh, which comes out to, I did the math. It was 81.5 days of facilitation, about 2000 hours of facilitation. Wow. So that's, that's a lot of time. That that's I impressive. Spent. That's impressive. A lot of energy that I spent in a place of leadership and, and in a place of, of taking men through some pretty, you know, intense experiences. And I am excited to say that I'm even more energized for 2022. So I'm going to have even more experiences. Uh, I will have some, some, you know, incredibly, uh, adventure oriented kind of experiences and things like that, which I'm really excited about, but I'm, I'm, I'm most excited about how I can be in a place of service. And, you know, so had some early conversations today. I want to put on some uh, veteran specific events to support veterans in, in their process of, you know, what does it look like to take a life and to lose, you know, part of oneself in doing that psychologically and then to come back to taking life, but with an animal in a reverent way, how does that reintegrate that, that story? Um, So I want to do more, I want to do more pure like service experiences where money's not an issue. I can raise some money, whatever the case is, and just give, give to people. I want to have more experiences. Um, And I'm working on a few different ways that I can really amplify this message to reach more people. I think one of the early ways is going to be some kind of a concept around a potential uh, bathhouse in Austin that's got a restaurant where people are really going to church and they're, you know, being fed uh, in a way that is going to be super nourishing and, 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 be in alignment with the message that I'm providing in certain ways, very intentional and also allow them to connect with their own, you know, experience of, of God and higher power um, in that physical space uh, and just making it more accessible to people because um, you know, wasn't, wasn't cheap to, to come on a sacred hunting experience. And you know, that is uh, it's, it's a great value. Sure. But, 
it doesn't mean that everyone can access it's that. It's not necessarily accessible for everybody, yeah. right? I feel very fortunate and blessed. Yeah. And so I want to make, I want to make those realizations more accessible and create the spaces for that. So there's a lot of different ways and it's a nonprofit. So I've got so many exciting things that are open, you know, possible. Uh, and I can't wait to explore them. Well, dude, I'm excited for you and to experience it myself. Uh, it just, you know, it gives me a lot of joy to see things coming together for you the way they are. You know, you've shared your story and all the things you've been through with in, in life, how you got to where you are and what you're doing now. So, so exciting to hear the, the prospect of what, what might be out there. I know for sure I'm going to be involved in it. And somehow, I mean, we've already, you know, and Mike being as, as tight as I am with Mike, we've already decided like we have to do at least one of these a year. I mean, we can't, can't not go on a sacred hot hunt with Monsa at least once a year. It's just, it's, there's so much to extract from it. Can't imagine not. So uh, as we get into uh, into 2022, I cannot wait to reconnect with you again, man. And I'm so grateful uh, and so pleased that I got to do it today. Thank you so much for being on. Absolutely, man. I appreciate uh, your you know intentional reflection on the experience and in what you've had since then and what's come up for you. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your thoughtful questions and your desire to, to support and further along in the message. So uh, thanks for the platform. More than welcome. You keep doing you, man. Keep, keep, keep spreading the good word. Keep helping people keep providing these experiences. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do in 2022. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of iron sites. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can support our mission by hitting the subscribe button, leaving a review and sharing the podcast with a friend. I'll see you on the next episode.